0: Hey folks, Keith here. Just a reminder that today's episode is part of our mini-series, Whiteboard Innovators. If you have questions about what this series is about and who OPG, the host, is, you can go back and listen to the episode that Olivia and I recorded where we discussed this mini-series, how it came about and why she's involved in it. I'm really excited to share the podcast with Olivia for this episode and the other ones in this mini-series. I hope you enjoy it. Take care.
1: Hello and welcome back to Whiteboard Innovators. At Bain, we take our most innovative, wild, and out-there ideas to the whiteboard, where we translate them from a disruptive concept into a workable reality. Today, we invite you to grab a marker and join us as we sketch out what's happening at the forefront of innovation and entrepreneurship at Bain & Company. Today, we have an incredibly special guest, Kent Bennett. Kent spent three years at Bain before leaving to become a screenwriter and producer in Hollywood. He eventually returned to the East Coast by way of Harvard Business School and took a job at leading venture capital firm, Bessemer Ventures. As a partner at Bessemer, he invests in startups spanning early and growth stages and focuses on consumer products and services, consumer-facing vertical software, and B2B marketplace. Kent, welcome.
0: Really fun to be here.
1: Oh my gosh, we are thrilled to have you. So with all of our alums, i like to start the episode at the beginning of your Bain journey. So bear with me a sec. It's 2000 and you're a brand new AC on your very first Bain case. What was that first day
0: like? Good Lord, 23 years ago. So I hardly remember, but I was never nervous, but I was clueless just sort of wandering around the hallways. I remember encountering a lot of people who seemed to know how the system worked and I was just kind of looking for the bathroom.
1: I love it. So you make it through those first couple of weeks. You end up staying three years at Bain. Uh, You end up as an SAC and thinking through what to do next. I'd imagine many of your peers were headed down the route of private equity, law school, business school. Mm -hmm. You chose Hollywood. Talk me through that. Were you nervous about deviating from the conventional path?
0: There's a pattern of sort of clueless wandering here, (laughs) but I'd grown up in Richmond, Virginia where I didn't know anyone who knew anyone who had ever been in Hollywood. And my best friend and I had both dreamed for a long time about writing stories in some form, movies being sort of paramount for us. And we both got to this moment, me at Bain, where I'd sort of completed three years, loved my experience at Bain, didn't necessarily see myself there for the next 20 years. And Bain created a lot of comfort and optionality to think about going away and coming back as a possibility so i had this wimpy safety net of bain this place i'd loved and that let me think about taking a a sort of a crazy career move which which it was
1: in the media it feels like there's this tension between creativity and structure right you never see the artistic painter character in the movies waking up at 6 30 a.m to check teams and organize her trello board but you know, we've talked in the past, and it sounds like you found a way to use some of the tools and structure that you learned at Bain to really further your career as a screenwriter.
0: 100%. When you write a page of a script, you have to recognize even the cheapest version of a production, it will cost thousands of dollars, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars per page to produce that script. And so you have to take that seriously. You have to take the business side of it seriously. Think about what markets are the product that you're creating for we were in conversations very early with people who had that production mindset and that hammered it home but bringing that sort of bane toolkit out to la was critical otherwise i think we would have spent you know several years kind of floundering writing purely creative stuff that had no viability at all
1: and you mentioned that you got your hands on a data set
0: yeah no and this is a little cringe (laughs) as I describe it, because it, I think certainly any working writer would absolutely be horrified. You know, at the time, like the internet was hardly working, but there was this IMDB database of sort of all-time movies. And one day I grabbed it, downloaded it and looked at the top, you know, several, I think it's the top thousand movies of all time box office wise. And I just did an exercise where I was like, okay, what are these movies? Like what has succeeded with audiences? What type of stories, what type of genres, what type of characters and spotted some clustering, looked at some realms where, oh gosh, there's some adjacent ideas that haven't been explored next to really you know interesting commercial sectors and use that to generate a bunch of log lines, as we call them, ideas for scripts. Paying attention to market segments and idea types, I think, was critical so that we could be in meetings with you know people who were proposing to produce those films and they would take it seriously.
1: I don't think that's cringe at all. I think that that's I think that's really smart. I think that creativity thrives under constraint. it,
0: It depends on the art form, right? Like if you want to be a visual artist in a cheap loft apartment, more power to you. I think that's incredible. And then you don't have to have the same economic considerations. But if you want to make, write a screenplay even for an independent film that's going to take millions of dollars to produce, I think you just have to be thoughtful about that. Yeah, absolutely true.
1: So you're in L.A., work planning, writing, producing content, and you found some traction. So you sold a TV pilot and a movie script. And after three years, you decided to make a change. I would imagine that for somebody who previously enjoyed a string of incredible successes, you know, Jefferson Scholar at UVA came to Bain. That decision was a tough one to come to terms with. At the time, did you regret taking the path less traveled?
0: No, I had zero regret. I mean, 3 years of my life where I got to focus on the craft of storytelling, where I got to make awesome friendships, where I got to know a great town. I think some people would express it to me like, "Oh, you're 3 years behind the track of whatever ultimate, you know, job you end up doing." But I'm not a golfer. Like I'm not looking forward to retiring early, and for me, these sort of side journeys into something you're interested in are valuable in themselves even if they don't produce some long-term career goal so zero regrets
1: yeah i completely resonate with that i think giving ourselves the space to explore try different things i think it makes us better at our jobs today
0: it's interesting because bain 100 percent supports that mentality but at the same time when you're at bain especially in that sort of like earliest ac track you're around a bunch of people who are just trying to figure it out and they're gunning and they're sort of thinking about their various paths and it can sort of pull you along on a treadmill that you may not have wanted to be on. I mean, I almost ended up going working working in in private equity early, which I think wouldn't have been a good fit for me, but I almost ended up doing it just because everybody was doing it. So I do think there's, Bain is a wonderful place to support this, but there's also like a crowd there that can be, that can sort of suck you along if you're not careful.
1: Absolutely true what made you choose business school as the right next step
0: yeah mainly a girl i met a girl at bain when i moved out to la i think i told her something like gosh i'm going to go out and work as a, a writer in la i need to be untethered and focused on my craft and so now we're married with three kids so that worked out really well actually she unlike me had her stuff together she had a plan and she encouraged me to think about applying to think about business school, even in a creative context, because I still very much had the mentality that I was going to remain in the creative industries. And I agreed she was right. She's right about most things. And so as she went along to school, I, I sort of tagged along, thinking that I would keep writing. And then, you know, the second I got to school, I got exposed to many more industries that hadn't even been on my radar, including venture capital and startups.
1: How did you end up at Bessemer?
0: a friend of mine from bain at business school and i signed up to direct the business school musical he had worked at bessemer and they were looking for someone who had some level of consumer mentality and so naturally as we were doing that he thought yeah you should meet my partners and and apply for this job and so that's how i got there
1: i love it you went into vc but without any experience at a venture-backed company do you feel like there was a steep learning curve there?
0: I had a ton to learn. I think the dirty secret of venture capital is that the major moment of value creation is identifying and choosing the startups to be involved with. It's not as if the venture capitalists like are are changing these startups or operating them. So, you know, in some ways a background as an operator it can give you a ton of credibility and a ton of power to have the right suggestion at the right moment. But it can also come with a a slight liability, which is you can convince yourself that you could show up on the board and operate and fix things.
1: I'm curious, what part of the Bain skill set translates to your role now and what doesn't?
0: Well, for me, there were sort of three things that I took from Bain that I have forever. One is just the ability to structure a problem and structure my thinking or my analysis, that sort of structured thinking, I think lends itself really tightly to, the, again, this core skill of selection and venture capital, where, you know, if you're looking at a sector or a trend or a theme, trying to figure out in just a massively noisy, messy world, like what is happening and what's interesting and what's differentiated, you know, you just need to impose some structure onto that chaos. The second piece that I think Bain teaches really well is just kind of a set of communication skills. Just thinking about structured communication. Okay, you've done the analysis, you understand or you think you understand some trend. How do you communicate that to the entrepreneurs you work with? How do you communicate that to your partners as you're thinking about investing in a sector? That's critical. And then the third skill with Bain is, is working with sort of high performance teams. You're working with, could be a dozen or more companies at any given time. So just how to organize that sort of process of a complex working relationship is a key skill.
1: Mm. And what do you think is missing from that Bain toolkit when you move into venture?
0: Most of your time in consulting, you're working on businesses that already work. And so the details really matter the operational excellence really matters like to the nth dimension you get massive returns on improving a lot of the little stuff whereas in venture you're really much more about the binary zero to one moment and so is this going to work or not not to say that the operational execution and details don't matter but again as an investor it's typically not your job to optimize the operations of these businesses really what you want to be involved in more is just that zero to one, that binary spotting.
1: In a previous conversation, you once described a consultant as being the coach of a team and the venture capitalist as being the guy who brought the lockers. Was there ever a part of you that wanted to play ball and build something yourself?
0: Absolutely. I mean, I think the most rewarding and most fun, you know, life-fulfilling job in the startup world is working at a startup that is successful. <laughs> There's nothing quite close to that in the startup world in terms of that sort of level of reward or impact, at least from from where I sit. And I think the the best investors sort of recognize that and recognize that their role is not to jump on the field at the end of the game and pretend they're part of the team because they're not. They didn't take that level of risk, personal risk, but you can still admire it and you can still be... An obsessive fan of incredible entrepreneurs as an investor and being adjacent to them can be thrilling and fun, but not the same way. I mean, I think there's no substitute for being on the field. So, certainly, people who are into the startup world and motivated to go work in startups, I I encourage it. I think it's an incredible career. I think my skill set probably is better at what I'm doing now. So, I think I'm in the right spot, but boy, being on the field is a ton of fun.
1: Mm, That makes sense. I read in an interview that you joined venture capital in 2008, undoubtedly a difficult time to be entering that industry. I'm curious, do you see any parallels to the fundraising market now versus them? And if so, do you have any tips for young investors or entrepreneurs who are trying to innovate in this time of uncertainty?
0: Yeah, there are certainly some parallels. I think, you know, markets broadly get happy and they get scared and they're currently scared. I have over time come to focus less on markets and less on interest rates. I know like a lot of investors would talk about, oh, the what's the Fed gonna do and how's that gonna inve- impact my investing approach? I don't buy any of that actually for venture. The next Google, when it is founded, will be able to raise capital always in every environment because the business will demonstrate a radical product advantage that will be working and so maybe that capital will be a little more dilutive or a little less dilutive depending on the moment but the pace of those next great businesses i don't think is is massively impacted by the macro trends and i saw that in 2008 2009 wow we saw a lot of future amazing businesses at a scary time and some of them we invested in some of them we didn't but Just a reminder, these things are out there and they're out there all the time.
1: You ended up at Bessemer gravitating towards the consumer products business. How did that shift happen? And what is it about that type of business that really excites you?
0: Well, so at Bessemer, we're allowed to wander thoughtfully between sectors. So we're all generalist investors. And if a sector or a theme attracts us, we can go for it. And so at first, when I started getting into some consumer investing, it's because there weren't other people looking in a focused way at consumer products. And we had a moment, you know, 2010 to 12, where you had a lot of these direct-to-consumer products companies being formed. And so, you know, we paid attention to it. I think that sector of investing has turned out to be pretty challenged. (laughs) I think we've learned that the real beneficiary of a lot of the direct-to-consumer product wave was facebook and other digital advertisers who took a lot of dollars from those brands and so my sort of next move one that's been a little more compelling for me as an investor is was to look at some of the software businesses that were attached to some of the consumer verticals that i was interested in and realize that there's a reason that software has driven most of the Great investments in the history of startups, and most of the great startups are software startups. Software is just a great business model, and especially this moment of recurring revenue software, SaaS software, you know, I think is maybe the greatest business model the world has ever seen. And so these days, I actually spend a whole lot more time there, and I'm pretty cautious around consumer. Not to say that there won't be many more multi billion dollar, trillion dollar, world changing consumer businesses, there absolutely will be, but they are. Exceptionally rare.
1: Wow, that's fascinating. I listened to your YouTube series on consumer product businesses, which by the way is phenomenal. And you you describe those businesses as akin to an earthquake, right? right. Super rare, yeah.
0: the, but super impactful. Yeah, they're not hard to spot. When a consumer product shows up that's going to change the world, what happens is that we as consumers say to ourselves, Holy crap, Uber exists now. You know, the first time I took an uber to like a party i am certain that i told everybody at that party what just happened like gosh you won't believe it i hit this button on my phone and i went from a to b magically and that's how most humans found out about uber it's easy for us to in a consumer world where we see all these super bowl ads and we're bombarded by consumer marketing to think that is the key to how consumer businesses grow but i think that's the key to how consumer big consumer brands are sustained but has no, almost nothing to do with the zero to one growth. The zero to one growth is new company introduces a product that is awesome and their customers tell everybody about it.
1: Mm. Yeah. You mentioned something similar to that on your series. And I have filtered every consumer product in my life through that lens now. I'm like, do I love this enough that I would tell somebody about it? it's rare. Yeah, it's absolutely, it's rare. Kent, we're coming to the end of our conversation here. I am heartbroken. I've had such a great time listening and and learning from you. But we're on our our last question. We ask this to all of our guests. At Bain, we're guided by our true north. So what has been the true north for you throughout your career? And I'll tack one on here. Has it changed at all since you started at Bain 23 years ago?
0: Yeah. When I started at Bain, my guiding force was being engaged and interested. I think I just, I just wanted to find things that were intellectually engaging. I think as I've gotten older, as I've had kids, et cetera, for me, the driver has shifted much more to one of kind of having authentic impact. So just being able to, to be myself and be honest and then work with people and companies who are just having a positive impact on the world. So it's not, not that original, but I've kind of shifted from that moth floating to the various flame of like what's interesting moment by moment to somebody who's much more focused on, you know, make sure to be real, be yourself. And where can you spend your time to have the most impact?
1: That's really powerful. Kent, thank you so much for your time today. I appreciate it. My pleasure.